So our scripture text this morning is uh, the last part of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and the very first part of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you have a Bible, it'd be a great time to turn to that. We're going to start with 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 17. If you'd like to use one of the blue Bibles that are in the chair racks, then I think you can go right there by, uh, yeah, by turning to page 1256 of those, uh, those blue Bibles. Now remember, uh, just big context here, Paul's writing to the church in the city of Thessalonica, that's uh, the, who this letter is addressed to, and we've talked, we've talked over the last couple of weeks about the big picture context. Remember, it's a, it's a Greek city, Thessalonica. Uh, where Paul planted a church, but he had to leave town quickly because of opposition that he faced there. That's the big context. Now, the specific context of what we're about to read here, before we actually read it, let's, it we, we have to look at the specific context because if you look at verse 17, you see it starts with the word but. So it's like, okay, well, where are we? Why? Anytime you start, you start a passage with a conjunction, you have to say, okay, what's it, what's it connecting here? Well, in the first part of chapter 2, um, what we've looked at the last couple weeks, Paul is reviewing his previous ministry in Thessalonica, in the city, for that short time that he was there. How he had declared to them the gospel of God. And he uses that phrase, the gospel of God, four times in the first part of, of chapter 2. And this gospel, this message that he brings, the word of God, is what led to a profound change in the lives of the Thessalonians. That's what we saw last week when we looked at uh, verses 13 to 16 of chapter 2. The word of God, the message of God, brings change into the lives of those who hear it and put themselves underneath it. Now this week, as we move into verse 17, Paul shifts into, in, into what's going on currently. And, and specifically, how he understands his continued ministry to the Thessalonians. Remember, he's not there anymore. But what has he done since he left? That's what it kind of shifts into now. And it's really, it's really a two-parter. We're going to start into chapter 3 and we're going to finish chapter 3 next week. This week and next week. And it's really the same overall theme over these, these two weeks. How a leader in the church exercises his care for those who are under, uh, exercises his, uh, his care for those who are under his, under his responsibility. And we're going to look at it over two weeks. Now we'll start, like I said, by looking this week at verse 17 of chapter 2 through verse 5 of chapter 3. So if you're able, let me invite you to stand as I read this. This is the word of God, we believe, and so this is why we do this. It's a sign of respect for the Word of God. Now, when I'm done, I'm going to make that declaration. I'm going to say, when I'm finished reading, this is the Word of the Lord. And I'm going to invite you, when I say that, to respond by saying, thanks be to God. So let me read this aloud as you follow along. First Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, we could not bear it. We could bear it no longer. We were willing to be, when we, when we, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain." 
This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, like I've been trying to mention, Paul is very practical, very relevant in the things that he is addressing with the Thessalonians, very relevant for our own time as well. And because this is God's word, we know that it is not just written for the period of this um, historical time in which it was written, but it is intended by the Lord to apply to our lives as well. And in recent years, uh, we have had a number of high-profile cases of churches that have collapsed because they've lost sight about what the church is supposed to do, about what its leaders are supposed to do. And that's what Paul is concerned about in 1 Thessalonians. He's concerned about this church that he's established failing and falling, and he's anxious to a certain extent He's worried about his own responsibility in that. And that's why he's writing. And that's, that, so, but this is an issue that has been a, an issue in our day as well. What is the role of leaders? What is the role of churches? How should they relate to those who are under their care? And how should the, church, the members of churches relate to one another? A very relevant question for us as a church. Kids, there's a number of kids who are actually right now thinking about what it means to become a member of the, the, member of the church. Right? There are others here at Calvary who are, uh, who, are, who are in the Calvary vision class, right? What should you be looking for? Right? Well, I mean, obviously, we talk, what, what, what marks a church? What should you look for in a church? Well, faithfulness to the Bible, clarity of, of Bible teaching, those things are non-negotiable, right? We've talked about that the last couple of weeks, right? We, we, we talked about, as I mentioned just a minute ago, the gospel of God revealed to us in the Bible. It saves us, it transforms us. That's what Paul's been talking about in chapter 2. Right? But a church, we have to confess, can be doctrinally right and spiritually cold. Actually, doctrinally right and even spiritually toxic in how that correct doctrine is applied. Right? So it still leaves us a little bit of the question, what do we look for? Right? Well, the letters of Paul are very helpful for us in that world, that world where that is a very valid question. Because if the question is, how should Christian leaders relate to those who are under their care? Well, in what we just read, we see that there are three areas of deep concern that the Apostle Paul has for the people in Thessalonica and, and one singular goal. So he's got three areas of concern and one singular goal. Now let's start with the three areas of deep concern. The first is community. All right, spiritual leaders must have a deep concern for life-on-life -life community in the church, personal relationships. Stephen Estock, some of you may um, have met him last November when he was here at Calvary. Stephen Estock is the coordinator for our denomination's Committee on Discipleship Ministries. All right, now the word discipleship, right? Kids, you know what discipleship means? Right, it's a big word and you hear it a lot in church, but it's an important word to understand. It's actually not that hard to understand because discipleship has something to do with being a disciple. And you might not, that's not a word that we use all the time either, but a disciple is just someone who follows and learns from some, uh, from some leader. You're a disciple of, uh, of some leader. Well, a disciple of, uh, in Christianity, is a disciple of Jesus, a follower, someone who sits under and follows Jesus. And so discipleship is simply the process by which we get better and better at understanding who Jesus is and how to how to follow him. Well, Stephen Estock has a responsibility for helping churches throughout our denomination with that process of discipleship. But what Stephen Estock always likes to say is that in order for discipleship to happen, in order for us to grow in our relationship with who Jesus is and how to follow him, that, that approach needs to be word-based and relationally driven. Right, word-based. In other words, our growth in being a better follower of Jesus is based, it's grounded in the word of God. And that's what we've talked about the last two weeks. But it is driven by relationships. 
Word-based and relationally driven. Now, Paul, what we're seeing here is a man who is a relationally driven kind of guy. We know he's word-based. He's been talking about that. But what we see now is he is relationally driven. He is just broken up over the fact that he and his team have been torn away from the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. And the word for, for torn away here, it's literally, it's orphaned. He's been orphaned. Now, the reason why the translations sometimes don't use the word orphan is because in our understanding of orphan, we normally think of the children, right? The children, are the one, the children who, are, who are taken away from parents, they're, they're orphaned, right? But in the, in the Greek sense of this word orphaned, it could refer equally to the children or to the parents, right? Parents who have had children taken away from them. And that's, it, that's what Paul's feeling, right? He says, when we were chased out of town, we were orphaned from you, right? We were torn away. It's a term of deep distress, Right? Now, that's what Paul means here. Right? He, he's, he's, he's describing a relationship that is a family relationship. And, and that's how Paul has, has, has referred to this relationship that he has with them a couple of times before. Right? He's used the parent metaphor twice already. In chapter 2, verse 7, he says right, that they, as spiritual leaders for these this people in this church, that, that, they, that they were like a nursing mother to the Thessalonians. Right? So he takes on the role of of mother in his relationship as, as pastor and spiritual leader. But then in chapter 2, right, not to leave the fathers out of the metaphor, in chapter 2, verse 11, he says that they taught and they encouraged the Thessalonians like a father with his children, right? So like a nursing mother, like a father with his children, but now he's being torn away from his children. And he has a deep concern for real community with them. He wants to see them face to face. That's right, so what he says in verse 17. Now, like he says, he was prevented from doing that, but it didn't keep him from figuring out a way for him to have some sort of face-to-face teaching and spiritual care that he was able to provide for the, the Thessalonians. That's why, chapter 3, verse 1, that's why he sent Timothy. A co-worker, it says, verse 2, right? A co-worker not just of Paul, but a co-worker of God. Timothy was equally ordained by God to go and to, and to be the the relational solution to the deep concern that Paul had for community-based ministry. Now, what does that mean? If, 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 if this is so important, right, not just to be word-based, but to be relationally driven, what does that mean for, for us? Well, it means that we can't do Christianity alone. You can't, right? You need, a, you need a family to be a part of, right? Spiritual fathers, spiritual mothers, spiritual siblings, right? It, it, I, I, family is such an over-applied term today right it seems like every group of people that you're a part of that they want to be a family have you noticed that it sounds like I'm being cranky I'm not trying to be cranky right I I know what people mean when they say that it means that they want the group that they're a part of to you know to be to be a group that cares for one another you know beyond just sort of a business relationship like we want to care for one another and that's good that's good you should support one another in whatever organization you're a part of right but as close as your sports team might be to one another, your teammates are not your family, not in a real objective sense. Your college, right? You're an alumni of this school or that school. It's not your family. Your coworkers are not your family. Your bandmates, they're not your family, right? There's no biblical basis for the term being applied in that kind of way, but there is a very clear biblical basis for the church to be spoken of in that way, right? We are brothers and sisters. Spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. Because our relationship isn't based on any contract of performance or anything like that. Because, see, if you get, um, if you get cut from the team, if you don't get the part in the, in the school play, 
if you fail your entrance exam, if you get fired from your job, then you're out of those families. Right? And that's not the fault. That's not the fault of the team or the drama company or your employer because that's not their function to be a, to be a family. Right? The, the, those kinds of conditions and those kinds of entrance rules and things like that, right? that's the way they're supposed to be. They're not designed to, to be a family, but the church is. And Paul is deeply concerned about it, that we be not just word-based, but relationally driven. Right? He doesn't want to just send a letter. He wants to send a person, which is why we gather here in one another's presence. Right? That's point number one. Paul's deeply concerned about the community of the, of the people. Now, second, and let me jump out of order here if you're following along in the, uh, in the bulletin. Paul is deeply concerned about Satan. Now, this is a short one before I get to the concern that Paul has about the Thessalonians' suffering where I want to take a little bit longer. But we have to mention this because it comes up twice in this passage. Um, and the threat is real. The, the threat of, of external temptation interacting with our, 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 our sinful desire to pull us and to lead us astray now of course we have to rightly understand what we mean right who is satan because the culture has this idea this concept and you know it's a guy with red you know all red and pitchfork and pointy tail and that sort of thing right but the bible never really describes any kind of physical characteristics in that way but the bible says that satan is a real being satan is a fallen angel leader of a group of fallen angels that rebelled against the authority of god and he's real and he's a deceiver and he works to tempt us and to distract us now importantly well, on the one hand, we have to recognize that he is, in fact, real. And that's one danger that sometimes people make. We just kind of say, nah, there's, it, there's nothing to it. No, he is real. But on the other side, we have to prevent against the other danger. And that is thinking that he's somehow equal with God. That is sort of, some, sort of you know, a power struggle or whatever. That, 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 that Satan actually is, is sort of like another God, duking it out with the true God to see who wins. And that's just not the case either. Right? He's not God. He doesn't know everything. He can't be everywhere. And his power is ultimately under the power and the authority of God. There's nothing that he can do that is outside of God's authority. But Paul is right to be concerned about Satan because he has recent and personal experience with him. If you look at verse 18, you see that Paul ascribes, at least in part, the reason to why he wasn't able to visit, the Thessalonica, uh, to, to visit Thessalonica. He says at least part of the reason is that Satan hindered him. Hindered, and that's a military term actually, right? A term that referred to uh, dramatic efforts that were taken to, uh, uh, to, to, to keep the enemy back, right? You know, sort of uh, scorched earth kind of tactics, right? You, the, 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 they're coming, blow up the bridges, you know, put mines on the airfield and blow up the, you know, the, the runways, right? Wreck the roads, right? We don't know the details, but Satan was behind Paul not being able to return to Thessalonica. He had put roadblocks in the way. He had hindered him. And that's a big, dearful, dearful, a big deal for Paul because part of his concern is that the same Satan who had been hindering him from having personal relationship and interaction with the Thessalonians, right? That same Satan, he's afraid, is going to tempt the people to abandon their commitment to Jesus. That's what he sends, says at the, in, uh, in verse 5, right? He doesn't want the tempter to come along and, 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 and hinder them from their journey in following Jesus, so he's concerned about that. It's part of the reason why he wants community with them. He wants to have relationship with them so that he can help, so that he can encourage, so that he can help them defend against the attacks and the temptations of Satan. That's the second thing. Now, the third thing that Paul is deeply concerned about for the Thessalonians is their, their suffering. We see that in chapter 3, verse 3. He sent Timothy to teach them so that no one would be moved by these afflictions. Afflictions. 
right? trials, painful struggles. Now, there are different kinds of afflictions that we face in this world, and we have to understand what Paul's talking about here and what he's not talking about, right? Some suffering is common to everyone just because we all live in the same world, right? Christians get sick just like everybody else does. I don't know if you noticed this, but the mortality rate for Christians is exactly the same as non-Christians, right? We will die, in the, in the same way that we will get sick, in the same way. When a bad storm brings flooding to our community, the rain falls on my house, the same as it falls on the house next door, right? Those are some kinds of afflictions because we all live in the same world. But there's other afflictions, and this is the kind that Paul is really talking about here, that relate specifically to the fact that you are a Christian, right? The opposition you face because you're a follower of Jesus, Right, now, this is important, and I want you to hear this. If, if you are a Christian, right, well, then you need to understand this. But if you're not a Christian, you kind of need to understand this too, right? Full disclosure about what happens when you're a Christian. We talked a little bit about this last week, how this could happen in Thessalonica, how they could face opposition because they became Christians, right? Once these men and women, once they began to follow Jesus and they stopped offering sacrifices to the Roman gods in the city, right, they were basically put on the outside of, you know, of polite company, Right? They weren't on the inside anymore. Certain things they weren't allowed to do. Certain aspects of life they weren't allowed to participate in anymore. I was talking to someone this past week um, who became a Christian as a young man while he was in the army. Um, he was a combat officer. Had reached the rank of major, actually. A lot of upside. Right? He, was, uh, he was sent to be an instructor at West Point, which he did with, with excellence. And the army was figuring out where he would go next. His next path his next step on the path to, uh, to likely being a general officer, perhaps, right? When he began at this time, he was already a Christian, but he began at this time to feel like God was calling him to use his teaching and his leadership gifts, not as an instructor at West Point, not as an officer in the United States Army, but as a minister in the church. And he told me, he said, look, he said, in the Army, there's really two basic categories. He said, there are stars and there are weenies. Stars and weenies. And, and he said for his whole military career up to that point, he had been a star, a rising star, even after he had become a Christian. But once he made a decision to follow Jesus in a way that would affect his military career, well, that's different. And he said, overnight, I went from being a star to being a weenie. Now, no one wants to be a weenie probably, right? We want people to think we're a hot shot. We don't want people to think we're a hot dog, right? But increasingly, Christians are gonna have to get comfortable with thinking about that differently, right? We aren't weenies, but we are, in a sense, rebels. We are, in a sense, revolutionaries. We do, in a sense, push back on some of the things that the world says is the way that you ought to go, the only way to do things, the only way that the trajectory of life should, should go. Now, I'm not talking about the violent kind of revolutionary, but I'm talking about the mindset that comes with being more comfortable with being a rebel when it comes to some kind of things, right? To, to not going along with the the cultural message that, that your school or your employer or your TV or your phone or, 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 or some um, influencer tells you you have to believe just because everyone else seems to be believing it, right? If you're a young man, you need to rebel against the idea that you can't follow Jesus and still be strong. That you, you need to rebel against the idea that leadership equals oppression and abuse, right? If you're a young woman, you need to rebel against the idea that being a Christian makes you, by definition, subservient and oppressed, right? That strong and true femininity isn't possible at the feet of Jesus. Rebel against that. Stand firm against the weenie wind that blows so that afflictions, like Paul says in verse three, they don't move you. They don't uproot you. 
And Paul tells you how you can do that, right? How we can stand. Look at what he says. He says you can do that in part by not being surprised when it happens, when the wind comes. Look, he says in verse 2 that he sent Timothy to teach them that, verse 3, so that, so that they wouldn't be moved by these afflictions, right? By being called a weenie. He said, look, you're going to be called a weenie. Don't get, don't be moved by that, right? Right, for, end of verse 3, and then he uses that word again at the end of verse 4, for we have been teaching you all along that we are destined for this. You see what Paul's doing for them? He's giving them the way to stand by helping them see their affliction in light of the bigger picture. And he's saying, look, God is in complete control of all of this. He said, wait, are you, are you surprised by the opposition that you're facing? Does this shock you? Right, that the world thinks you're a weenie when you reject their gods and follow Jesus, right? He said, don't be surprised. This is your destiny. It's going to be hard. Right? There's a crisis. I don't know if you've, if you've heard this. Many people are observing there's a crisis in recruiting for the U.S. military, right? Have you heard that? Almost all the branches, it seems, are having trouble meeting their recruiting targets. And there's lots of reasons and lots of social commentary on why, and it's, and it's very, very, and it's complicated. There are, there's lots of reasons. But I read an article uh, written a few weeks ago that said that, interestingly enough, the Marine Corps, in contrast to all the other service branches, seems to have easily met its 2023 goal for the fiscal year. It ends in October, the recruiting year. It seems that they've easily met their 2000, 2023 goal. Now, the author, again, like he caveats, he says, look, I know there's lots of reasons for the overall trend, but he does point out, interestingly, that the Marines are the one branch that has always tended to recruit by telling people that what they're about to do is not going to be easy, it's going to be hard. Right? That, that's, actually, that's actually their marketing message. He says every branch, he said all of them, no matter which one you choose, he said they all offer lots of diverse career opportunities, lots of benefits, he said, but the Marines, they don't market themselves as a place to fulfill your dreams and ambitions so that you can go and market yourself as a good, get a good civilian job when you get out. That's not how they do it. Right? They market themselves as saying, look, it's not about you. It's about being a part of something bigger than you. It's about being a part of a community where you're going to face challenges and you should expect it. And interestingly, go figure, that's actually attractive. Because of the prospect of facing something hard in the context of community, it actually resonates with our design. Right? The Marines, don't, they don't pay lots of bonuses to, to their recruits. In fact, the Marine Corps Commandant, Assistant Marine Corps Commandant, General Eric Smith, he said, your bonus is you get to call yourself a Marine. That's your bonus. There's no dollar amount that goes with that, right? In other words, what he's saying is, is it going to be hard? Yeah. Will you face opposition to being a Marine? Count on it. That's what he says. But that's what you'll be. You'll be a Marine. Now, I'm not trying to be all macho. Look, I am not, I, I am not tough enough to be a Marine, right? And not everyone is called to be a Marine. And a Marine's mission is different. But we are called to be something. We are called to be a Christian. And while Christians don't react in the same way as a Marine might to the opposition that we might face, we perhaps need to face the opposition that we will face with some of that mindset of just expecting it and not being surprised when it comes. Right? Let, let me quote an old theologian to make it sound more official, right? John Calvin. He wrote, it was his commentary on this passage. Paul teaches that there is no reason why believers should feel dismayed on occasion of persecutions as though it were a thing that was new and unusual. This is our condition, which the Lord has assigned to us. Right? Calvin says, he said, when Paul writes here in 1 Thessalonians 3, when he writes that we're destined for this, Calvin says, it is as though he had said that we are Christians on this condition. 
on this condition of being prepared to face opposition. In other words, is it going to be hard to face, follow Jesus? Yeah. Right? Will you face opposition to being a Christian? Count on it, Calvin says. But that's what you will be. You will be a Christian, a disciple of the king of the universe. Now, Paul has a deep concern for all of these things, for real community in the church, for protection against temptation, and for resolve in the midst of opposition. But he doesn't leave the Thessalonians without a picture of what's ahead, about a way where all those concerns can be met, right? He doesn't think that the Christian life is about, okay, these are all areas of real deep concern. Let's hunker down and hope the storm blows over. No, the Christian life is about press on, pressing on through the storm because there's something on the other side. Paul gives them a sense of what the destination is, of what his goal is, of what he hopes to achieve. In other words, there's a goal, and that goal is what keeps the Christian going, and that's the, that's the last point, this singular goal that Paul has. This is how he cares for his people, because he's got a goal. He, he feels um, a need to show the Thessalonians the way to go, because he doesn't want his labor, you see this in verse five of chapter three, he doesn't want his labor to be in vain. Which means that after all that's happened, he wants them to actually finish the race. He says, I didn't come to you originally. I didn't send Timothy to you. I didn't do all this so that you could just fall away. Look at verses 19 and 20. He says, we are not in this for the short-term glory. We're here all the way to the end so that, look, when the Lord Jesus returns, you'll be standing firm. That's what he says, right? That, he says, is, is, was his singular goal. Right? That's his hope, it's his joy, it's his crown, it's the glory. Now you have to understand, when Paul's talking about this about himself, he's not making it about him, right? He's saying that there is nothing that would be a greater joy for him, nothing that would bring to him a greater crown when Jesus returns than to see the Thessalonians having successfully reached the place of victory, successfully reached the end of the road. Right, now you as people in this congregation, right? One of the things you have to see is that how, how this is showing us just how closely we are wrapped up with one another. And, and, and by saying that, I mean you and me, right? The, the pastoral leaders and the church, how closely they're intertwined. You see, Paul is talking to his church. He's a pastor to his people, and he's saying that his measure of victory is tied up with and wrapped around and, 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 and it's lined alongside of the victory of his people. And, and I'm sorry, but it's, it's true. I mean, it's true in this sense. My, my first official sermon, I preached when I was candidating here for the church. My first official sermon at Calvary was five years ago next week, right? The third Sunday of October, five years ago. Right? But here's the thing, I could preach to you for 50 years, not five years, for 50 years, lots of great sermons, lots of true teachings, but if your lives, if your behavior in your homes, if, if your behavior in your neighborhoods, in your jobs, in the way that you live with one another, in the way that you battle temptation, in the way that you face opposition, if those things don't match my teaching, then to the extent that my teaching is biblical, then the labor of my teaching is, listen to this, it is, based on what Paul, it's in vain. And I think that's at least what part of Paul is feeling here. It's the stress of a coach who works with his, his athletes over and over again, and then they go out on the field, and at that point, there's nothing that he can do except watch. 
And if the athlete performs, it doesn't necessarily mean that the coach is so brilliant, but man, does it make the coach feel amazing. Why? Because the coach and the athlete are so wrapped up together in the enterprise that they're pursuing that the victory of one is the victory of the other. And I'm talking about, you know, the, the, the feeling of amazing, like in the right kind of way. I'm not talking about an ego trip. I'm talking about the joy of victory. The legitimate satisfaction that comes when someone you've cared for and encouraged and exhorted has reached the goal and reached the destination of victory. Okay, but here's the problem, and it's not hard to see the problem, right? This is actually, it seems like a really crushing proposition, what I just said. That's tons of pressure. Tons of pressure on me, tons of pressure on you, because the goal and the victory, right? What is the victory? The victory is to be standing blameless in holiness before our Lord Jesus that is coming. That's the goal. Oh, that's it? That's it. Yeah, just be perfect when Jesus comes, right? That's all I got to get you ready for, and that's all you got to do. When Jesus comes, just be perfect. And the word for coming, right, that's used here, the coming of Jesus, right, it's the Greek word parousia, and it wasn't an uncommon word in the ancient world. It referred to the arrival of the emperor or the arrival of a king, the parousia, his coming, Right? And it was a word that actually could be, in the ancient world, as anxiety-producing as it would be exciting. Right? I remember um, the third of the original Star Wars movies, Return of the Jedi. Anybody remember that? Right? The officers of the, of the evil galactic empire, they're building this huge space station that's going to help them rule the galaxy, but they're running behind schedule. Now, I don't know why they're running behind schedule. Who knows? The usual stuff, probably. Supply chain issues you know, labor relations problems, blueprint redesign costs, someone didn't like the wallpaper color, they had to change that, it's gonna take extra time. They're running behind schedule, right? And Darth Vader arrives, and Darth Vader is, he's kind of like the enforcer for the emperor, and he informs the commander of the project, the construction project, that, uh, that the emperor is coming. Parousia, he's coming. And the commander, when he, when he learns this, he's noticeably afraid. His throat kind of tightens a little bit. His, he, he starts choking on his words and he stammers. And he's like, the emperor's coming here? Right? The parousia of the emperor is not comforting. It's not exciting. It's nerve-wracking. Why? Because the emperor has high standards, and he is, to use Darth Vader's words, right, most displeased with your apparent lack of progress. Right? And so it would be with our anticipation of the parousia of King Jesus if we were just left to this task alone. Right? Because if he were to objectively look at how we're doing, right, he would be most displeased with our apparent lack of progress. Right? So for me then, if my job, my only job, is to get you ready to be perfectly holy when Jesus returns, right? the task of teaching you perfectly, Right, so that I say everything perfectly, give you the kind of community you need exactly, protect you from all the temptations that I should prepare you to, to, to face, lead you through all the afflictions that are going to happen in your lives, right? That'd be absolutely, I mean, it'd be crushing, it'd be nerve-wracking, right? And for you, on your part, right? Nerve-wracking, right? With the task of living out the gospel perfectly, right? Putting into practice everything that you know and you've heard, loving others, resisting temptation, right? Fighting through affliction and, and opposition like you should, right? That'd be crushing, crushing for me, crushing for you. If that were the way for me to ultimately wear the crown of victory that Paul's talking about there in verse 19, but it's not. See, it's not, that's not how we get the crown, ultimately, the crown in the ancient world was really a, uh, really a wreath in, in common usage, right? It was made of vines, branches that were kind of, you know, woven together, placed on the head of a victor of some great contest, right? The crown of victory, the wreath of, 
of victory, right? Look down here, right? You see this? You look at this every week, right? But I want you to really look at it. What is that? It's a wreath, right? It's a, it's a, it, it's a crown. It's a laurel wreath, right? The, the, the crown of victory that was, that, that was you know, given to some winner of a contest in Greek and Roman culture, right? And it is the symbol of victory that is ours and has won, been, won, been won by Jesus, right? So we are guaranteed the crown of victory because Jesus the king has achieved the victory for us. In this case, the coming of the emperor, the parousia of Jesus, needn't come with anxiety because he has already achieved the victory that he then requires us to follow in. Now, what's the victory that you want? Well, it's the victory over, over our sin, over our shortcomings, over our rebellion, over our apparent lack of progress. He's defeated it. He's defeated death. And how did he do it? Well, he did it by doing something that we could have never done, right? He lived, right? Paul's concerned about fellowship and community, right? He left, Jesus left perfect fellowship and community in relationship with the Father and with the Spirit. He left that to become a man, to live among us and to die, he left it. He resisted temptation, the temptation of Satan. He resisted it perfectly. He lived the perfect life. He faced the ultimate opposition, the ultimate suffering in experiencing on the cross the punishment that we deserve. All those areas of deep concern, Jesus did it perfectly and wins the crown of victory for us. He took the crown of thorns that we rightly deserved and he gives us the wreath of victory that we could have never earned. And when, you, and when you're trusting in that truth, then all of a sudden the goal to which we're called, the task that I have, the task that you have, those become attainable because yes, we still have to walk the path, right? We still have to face the temptations. We'll still face opposition together, but it's nothing like what he faced already. In point of fact, the only way that we're able to walk the walk that we now have in front of us is because he walked it first. It, it's like this, right? A few years ago, a family in my old church, right? They took a vacation to Europe. And they went because their father or grandfather um, had been in the army during World War II and had fought his way from France through Belgium and into Germany from 1944 to 1945. And they wanted to follow the path that he had followed. And they did, right? They flew, they visited, they visited some of the towns, they followed kind of the, you know, the, the, the roads, they visited the cemeteries, they traced the steps. Now, if you think about it, that's a bit how we live the Christian life, right? We help each other as a family walk along the path that leads to victory but we know as we go along the path that the victory's already been won right we walk the path knowing that the only way that we're able to walk the path that we're walking is because someone else walked it first shedding blood and clearing the roads that's how they were able to go on their vacation yeah they follow the path yeah they wanted to do it yeah it was right for them to do it yeah, they had a goal, the same goal that the army did in 1944 and 1945. The same goal that, that Jesus has to be standing blameless before the Father, that's our goal too. But see, the only reason why we can walk along that path is because someone else went first, clearing the roads and shedding blood so that we can walk on it. As a pastor, my role is to lead. But I am not the one who shed my blood to blaze the trail. I'm the guide along a trail that's already cleared, already cleared by the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the calling that you have placed on our lives and for the fact that you do not give us a task that is unattainable. Unattainable because of our own lack of strength. It is unattainable in our own efforts, but it is very attainable because of the efforts of Christ because of him doing what we could not do. And so Lord, I pray that that truth would penetrate each of our hearts. 
that we would deeply go into community with one another, helping and loving each other here in the context of this local church, that we would resist temptation, that we would face opposition, that we would do it together, we would do it with joy even, because we know it is a battle already won and a path already walked. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.